Hello and welcome to another SPAC Insider podcast, where we bring an independent eye in interviewing the targets of SPAC transactions and their SPAC partners. I'm Nick Clayton, and this week my colleague Marlena Haddad and I will be speaking with Scott Ford, CEO and co-founder of Westrock Coffee. Westrock has grown into the number one wholesale provider of coffee and tea to U.S. restaurants. It entered into a $1.1 billion combination agreement with Riverview Acquisition Corp. in April. And it is now looking to use its SPAC deal to make a big move into cold brew made in the United States. Scott talks about how the company has worked to insulate itself from supply chain and commodity disruptions, and why a SPAC deal is preferable to an IPO or more trips to the private equity watering hole, and what specific features of this transaction made it work from Westrock's point of view. Take a listen. So based on my own coffee consumption, I assume business is going strong, if not growing to perhaps alarming levels. But in the broader view, how is the coffee industry going in general from your point of view? Coffee is a very steady, uh, very steadily consumed commodity throughout time. We have uh, we actually traded up in the 08 financial crisis in terms of volume that people uh, consume in the COVID pandemic. People quit buying it at restaurants and C-stores, but started consuming multiple times in-home what they previously did, and the overall aggregate volume has rocked on at a pretty steady pace. The fun thing about it right now is the transition from hot to cold, and the volumes there are just, it's the fastest growing product in grocery stores today. So it's got its own, another kind of new leg that's different than anything we've seen before. Yeah, I definitely want to get into all those dynamics as well. But as you were touching upon, we've seen a major shift over the past 20 years from coffee, the coffee shop space really exploding. But at the same time, you know, with the pandemic and other things like that, you know, we've seen shifts, but the coffee shop space was the place where there were, they were really grabbing big margins for a period of time, but you're at the wholesale level. So what are some of the advantages of your slice of the market? and, And what have you been seeing in terms of the trends? The nice thing about the coffee shop space, and, and you have to give him his due, you know, Howard Schultz created this industry. Uh, I've only met him once. He was a very pleasant <laughs> guy. We just shook hands and chatted for a minute. But they created this space. And where they went with the pioneering of this, the, the mass market coffee shop, everyone else in the industry has played off of that card in one fashion or another. So it rolls through those shops. It then rolls through regional chains, maybe goes up higher specialty, eventually comes to the quick drive-through restaurant, the quick service restaurant space, because they have to compete for their slice of that purchase decision throughout the times of day that Starbucks was competing with them. Then it rolls into retail on the shelf and now private label. You know, the specialty drinks are starting to show up in private label more on the cold side than the hot. But, but that space has been uh, pioneered by them and everyone else has played off of the cards they dealt. And COVID obviously had an impact on a variety of industries, especially retail and and restaurants. So what sort of trends and shifts did you notice throughout the pandemic within the beverage industry? There was, as you said, there were some industry segments that were hurt materially. The the drive-through restaurants, seated restaurants were hurt the most. The drive-through restaurants were able to get back on their feet by changing to some extent the way and the the speed with which they could move people through drive-through. The delivery services took off. The in-home consumption literally went up multiples, uh, not a percentage base. I mean, I think it was actually 35%, all of which came out of what people used to buy coffee. And, you know, when they would go into a C-store or go to a seated restaurant, they pulled that to drive-throughs and at home. That started to level back out. But one of the interesting things is that the retail share 
continues to be persistently higher than it was pre-COVID, even as most of the restaurants have regained the foot traffic that they had pre-COVID. And it is summer, but even without the heat, consumers seem to be drifting more towards cold brew, as you've previously mentioned. How are you attacking that category? And how does the supply chain for cold brew differ from hot coffee? Yeah, and this goes a little bit back to Nick's question that, that he asked a minute ago. Our position as a wholesaler is we love all of it. They want to build stores. They want to build stores across the street from each other on the same block. We're for it all. We are a provider of other people's brands, to other people's brands, of coffee from hot coffee to specialty drinks to cold ready to, go, uh, ready to drink in a can or bottle. And that space, to, to your specific question, is really lighting up as the generational shift takes place. I turned 60 last week. 97% of the coffee that my friends drink is hot and black. <laughs> 50 plus percent of people that are your age are drinking cold coffee and they're drinking more of it and throughout the day. So our job as a player behind the brands that you purchase from, we supply all of them in whatever format, whether it's a restaurant or, you know, we're a supplier of other coffee companies' coffee. That's something that most people don't under, understand about our business model. Yeah. And on that supply chain question, how much of your overall operations do you have within the U.S. and how sensitive are you to supply chain issues in terms of whether it's packaging or beans, et cetera? So the coffee industry is particularly interesting in that respect because coffee is grown in the tropics around the equator at altitude. And so there are always potential supply chain problems from weather, pestilence, disease, et cetera. And then all of the human introduced factors around pandemics and shipping problems and container space and all of that. We source out of 35 different countries today. Our manufacturing business is 95% in the United States. We have a cluster of manufacturing facilities in North Carolina and a cluster here in Arkansas. We have a manufacturing facility in Malaysia that primarily serves our large American-based drive-through restaurant chains. And for their operations in Asia. So we, we fight the battles that anyone with that kind of complex supply chain would have. But frankly, the news, you know, general news is always a month behind what's really happened. You know, anybody that works in, a, in, a, in an industry that's had their, their industry written about says, well, I knew that. That's old news, you know, by the time it normally makes the news. So probably 80% of the ports that we deal with, and we, we get a bi-weekly update on every port and the flow through of the traffic at that level. And probably 80% of the ports are, are back within two to three weeks of what was normal for them in their loadout and delivery. And so we are susceptible to issues around that front. But for the most part, those are starting to get worked out and starting to look more normal now. Great. And you count yourself as being not only the number one coffee supplier to U.S. restaurants, but also the number one tea supplier. So how is your supply affected there as well on the tea side with Sri Lanka's troubles and ongoing kind of changes in consumer tastes? Yeah. So Sri Lankan tea, for the most part, is not blended. And most of the teas that we make and most of the coffees that we make are a blend of multiple types from multiple geographies. So we weren't particularly impacted by Sri Lanka because they have traditionally sold as a hot tea and they've sold it as a country that was labeled as such. Our tea comes out of Argentina. We're the, I think we buy 40% of all the tea that comes out of Argentina. Uh, and then we, we have a, a large purchasing uh, operation in China where they grow another type of tea that blends well to the American iced tea flavor profile. 
So we've talked about your dominant position in the market within the United States, but Asia and Europe hold a lot of potential. So what are your plans for expansion there? Well, I, I don't want to say we're dominant in anything. We're currently number one, but we've got a lot of room to grow and there, there are more people that don't do business with us than do. So um, <laughs> I've got to put that pin down. Our business internationally, the way that we're thinking about it, having built a, a couple of plants, believing of build it and they will come in the, the old baseball movie analogy, I don't want to do that again. So when one of our large customers calls us and says, we want you to go to XYZ country in Europe or the Middle East or Southeast Asia, those we move to the top of the line. And if it's a big customer that says, look, I'll give you an order the day you turn it on, that that plant will be profitable for you, then you can sell to anybody else on the rest of your capacity. That's one we will do. We built a plant in Malaysia from concept to finished product going out the door in less than 18 months in the middle of COVID because our largest restaurant customer called us and asked us to do that. Wow. And, and to that end, can you talk about how different your rollouts in those places are, given there are fewer coffee shops in Japan and Saudi Arabia, let's say, than compared to France? Yes. Particularly in those two markets, there is a, a very high-end specialty focus. And we have a business that sells to those kinds of roasters around the world called Falcon Coffees that's in the family of companies here at West Rock. And that business is doing fantastic. The specialty high-end, you, you can go to a coffee shop. I was in one right before COVID in Saudi Arabia that's as nice, a super high-end coffee shop as any you'll go into in the world. And the palate refinement that they demonstrate that they have an appreciation for is as good as there is in the world. So Japan's the same thing. You can go to neighborhood coffee shops that have been there since after World War II, and they'll have a specialty brew that was focused on for that week. So there's a super high-end market. Most of what we sell, though, in volumes is to the mass consumer level, and it, and it might have those coffees in it, and it might not. And the market right now is pretty hungry for cash generation. And although the wholesale coffee market perhaps doesn't offer giant margins, Westrock appears to have a relatively solid, profitable base. So where are you looking to improve margins and drive more profitability as you've set a goal of 10% EBITDA margins for 2024? Yeah, so it, I think it's really important, Marlene, to recognize two things. Most of the margin shift on a constant coffee price assumption, most of the margin shift is going to be driven by our business mix shift as we sell more and more flavors, extracts, and ingredients through the new facility in Conway um, that we talked about a moment ago. That's the number one driver of our margin. It's important, though, to remember that coffee prices, we pass those through. So if the coffee price goes up, we have higher expenses and higher revenue. So in a strange world, our margins actually go up to some extent when our revenues go down because we work for a, basically a contractual margin and we pass through the C price and the, the coffee costs back and forth. So the margin mix drives most of our EBITDA margin shift. There is something to keep an eye out for on the C price. And then we leave margin on the ground. We do. We spend money doing audits of farms, doing agronomy training, um, being on the ground with the farmers in the developing world, because that's why we started the business in the first place, was to help those people increase their livelihood. And you can't do that if you're not there with them doing training on an annual basis. And our margins reflect the fact that we spend money there. But our market position reflects that our customers value that. So 
We have to go in the commercial world and have this as good a product, better product, better price, better service. And then if we choose to spend some of that money helping farmers increase their livelihood and be become you know, more efficient farmers of a higher value crop, then that's the choice we've made. And it's in our numbers too. Great. And, and moving on to the deal, how did you decide that now was the right time to go public for the company? And ultimately, what made a SPAC deal seem more attractive than a regular way IPO or a private raise? That's a great question, Nick. The simple answer, the reason that we were going public now is because of the twofold growth opportunity we've got between building out the ready-to-drink can and bottle facility in Conway that we talked about, which is largely for the U.S. market, for customers of ours that are in the coffee business. That is a huge, it's a several hundred million dollar investment over several years that the balance sheet that we had put together, we started this business from scratch 14 years ago, and the balance sheet after COVID didn't allow us to fully engage on that. We could build a plant in Malaysia, but that's a far cry from building something, the, the largest roast to ready to drink facility in the country. Second thing is, Marlena asked about this a second ago, is as we go internationally, we wanna go where our customers want us to go. And when they ask us, because they're looking for the whole product set of, that we offer, coffee, tea, beverages on the extension, we want to go with them and they're wanting us to go faster than our balance sheet allowed. So those two reasons, Conway and international expansion, are why we're going back to the public markets. Now, to your second question, and this is where it gets a little more nuanced and interesting. I have said before, we had to put sandbags around the building to be able to work because private equity would have given us any dollar value of money to invest in this that you can imagine. I have a big imagination, and I had a hard time imagining. But at the same time, when new money comes in at the scale we're talking about coming, it coming in, you're essentially talking about a change of control transaction, even if it's in an equity raise. And I'm too old for that. So if you want to, if you want to buy the business, you can buy the business. If you want to invest in it at a sub-premium or market value, then the public markets are where you get a chance to do that. So that's why we didn't do private equity. We had private equity in from a transaction we did a few years ago. And instead of wanting out, they wanted to roll. So now I'm going to have private equity on top of private equity because they're rolling 100%. We're all rolling. The common, we're all rolling. The private equity fund rolling 100% of theirs. So it was going to be problematic down that path. Why a SPAC versus an IPO if I'm going to get your right next question? The SPAC allowed us to do two things that an IPO doesn't. And I know this sounds a little strange, but the SPAC allows you to have price specificity agreed to upfront. An IPO, they'll quote you a range, X to Y, feed you a nice dinner, put you up in a nice hotel. They'll let you know in the morning how the book filled. So you don't get price certainty and you don't always get price in the range. But we had private equity that was rolling and I was turning down private equity money and I needed price certainty so that everybody knew exactly what they were signing up for. So the SPAC could do that. What can a SPAC not do? It doesn't speak to volume commitment, right? So you don't have depth of market knowledge. So we were talking with a handful of SPACs and Brad Martin was the first one who came over and said, I know how to solve this problem. I can give you the price certainty by contract and then I can solve the depth of market. I'm going to go raise a pipe 100% the size of my SPAC so that if not $1 in the SPAC comes in, you've gotten all of the money that was going to be in the SPAC anyway. So now I've got price certainty. I've got depth of market certainty. And now we're going to wait on Wall Street. And we're going to say, we've already priced it for you. So instead of saying, Wall Street, price it for me and tell me how much we get, we're saying, we're going to price it for you, and we're going to get at least half of the money in, 
And then if you want to come join us on those terms, come on, don't redeem your SPAC shares. And if you say, ah, not really my game, that's fine, but I'm not going to pay you. I'm not going to pay you to provide a market opportunity for me because I've provided the market opportunity for you already and having it priced at $10. We're putting new money in at 10 bucks. We figure if it's good enough for the insiders, it's good enough for the street. And if they agree, great. We'll take that money and put it to good use. And if they don't, no worries. Yeah, that's fascinating. And you, you touched upon it, but I'm just interested in getting your sense of just how the, the past couple of years have gone in terms of SPACs have been, you know, very frothy in certain sectors, some of which are, you know, huge growth sectors like electric vehicles and whatnot. And in, in a lot of ways, you know, wholesale coffee is one of those that is a fundamentally strong business, but one that may not be super attention grabbing on the same level. But you, you mentioned that you're, you're talking to, to multiple SPACs there. How did the kind of that the process feel as the market changed and how did the Riverview team stand out among the bunch? Yeah. So we were, I think, very interesting to anybody that, it, that came out of a traditional cash flow positive M&A platform, scalable business. And anybody that was in, in that arena, uh, we heard from a number of them. There are a bunch of great business people that run those. And they're looking for things that have a reasonable value, a real business, already EBITDA positive, et cetera. The thing that stood out about Riverview is, frankly, Brad Martin is one of the great business builders of our generation. So he took four little country department stores in East Tennessee and turned it into Saks Fifth Avenue. When Pilot had four gas stations, today they're the largest travel center operator in the country. They're twice the size of the second largest. He's been on their board since the very early days and helped them grow that business. He was an early investor on the board and helped take Lululemon public, which he waxes on about the switch from hot to cold coffee is like the switch to athletic leisure wear and women's fashion. And I don't know what he's talking about, but he gets really excited about the comparison about how fast that market uh, is, is shifting and our position in it in the coffee space. And my wife says, yeah, he's right. And I'm like, okay, that's good. Um, and then of course he's the vice chairman of FedEx in case something were to ever happen to Fred Smith and Brad would take over as the chairman of FedEx. So he is a global platform operator who shares our vision for two things. We want to build the number one business in this industry globally over the next five to 10 years. And we're going to do it so that people on the ground make a fair wage for the product that they produce. That's why we started the business. Well, the reason we want to be number one is if we're having an impact on the ground, we might as well have as large an impact on the ground as we possibly can. But we know that to do that, we've got to run the best commercial business and make more money for our shareholders than the guy down the street, because that's the name of the game and how score is kept here. So that, that three-way kind of paradigm, we're shareholder friendly, we're farmer focused, and we're going to be the most competitive in front of our customers for the products and services they buy from companies like ours globally. He's one of the few people who goes, you know what? Yeah. Instead of, I think you're crazy, which I've gotten so many times I, I, I've quit counting. He goes, yes, absolutely. We can do that, can't we? I said, absolutely, we can do it. But first, we have to be willing. And he was the partner who said, I'm not only willing, I can see it, I'm willing. I'll give you price specificity, depth of market specificity, that no public market will do that. And I won't do it at a valuation where I basically take control of the business through new capital in without having paid you the common shareholders a premium, which, you know, he get and it's refreshing. Great. And, and just, you know, looking ahead to the world in which you are a public listed company, you know, one of the things that becomes a lot easier once you're a public company is M&A. And so looking at those opportunities, how do you plan to balance attacking those opportunities when it comes to how much, you know, cash you're going to put in transactions versus share capital? And, and what, what's sort of your philosophy on that? Yeah. So 
we were able to generate 19% compound growth rate returns at Altel when I when I ran that business for 13 years. We we went from a four or five billion dollar market cap to 30, sold it essentially at the end to Verizon. We did that through organic growth, new builds, organic growth on the infrastructure that we had in place, and through acquisitions. And it was about half and half. So we were able to triple the growth rate of the industry by moving forward in an organic fashion a new build fashion, and an acquisition fashion. And I, I think we'll practice something very similar. I'm mindful of what the value of the business is and whether we're creating accretion for the current shareholders or dilution at, a, at not only an EPS or an EBITDA per share level, but at a real value on the next three to five year basis. And what balance sheet will weather any storm versus what balance sheet are you taking a risk on or things have to go your way. Now, we've got a great board. We have a 10-member board, people that have been running big public companies for a long time. Probably half the board have run large public companies over the last 30 years. And I, I think the group thinks through that the right way. As I've said, you know, you, you turn the keys over to a team that wants to go make acquisitions on an unseasoned platform, and it's handing the keys of a super fast car to a 14-year-old. You know, you will get your capital destroyed. Most M&A is destructive, not accretive. And so having rigorous processes around what you will and won't put up with culturally and what you do and can't not do from a process and procedure perspective is really a high art form. And most of the folks that run that force here were with me at Altel 20 years ago when we went through that stage. They've all had to learn coffee, but the business process stuff doesn't really change. <laughs> And labor has been a rising cost on the retail end of the coffee chain, which of, of course you're insulated from, but from your standpoint as a wholesaler, what do you see as being some of the bigger challenges that the space is going to face moving forward? Well, price pressures have all been real. Labor pressures have been real for everybody in the manufacturing business. Freight has just been unbelievably challenging, freight costs. And that seems to slowly be working its way through. For the most part, this is about the price of gasoline. You look at volume flows, when COVID started to recede and people started to resume their lives, we saw volume start to tick up in every channel across the space until gasoline went to $5. Then we watched it trend right back down. And so it, it not only impacts our cost, it drives all inflation. Gasoline prices drive all, drives all inflation. I was around trying to get a job in the uh, early 80s, late 70s, the last time we went through this. It's all about the gasoline price. Because if you're going to grow it, you have to plant it. That takes diesel. You have to fertilize it. That takes petrochemicals. You have to harvest it. That takes, you have to transport it. It's all about the fuel cost. So as that starts to come back to something closer to normal here in the last three to four weeks, we've immediately seen the consumer start to come back out. But it's that fragile. Yeah, that's fascinating. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's going to be big things you have on the horizon coming up. But, you know, even closer on the horizon is that I, I see that uh, both you and Riverview have set um, the vote date for August 25th. So what else can you tell us in terms of the timeline of both this transaction? But what, what are some of the things you're looking forward to before the end of the year? Yeah, well, we're delighted to finally be effective at the SEC. We got it done in I don't know, about three and a half months. But we were a business that was cash flow positive. They had put out their guidance before we filed about what they wanted to see in the prospectus going forward and all that. We had gotten 90% of it. We held up a few days, made sure we got to 100, pushed that through, and, and that process has actually gone pretty seamlessly well, and we're thankful for that. We'll close within, I, I think the standard that I'm told is 24 to 48 hours after the vote. I would imagine that gets done. 
here at the end of August. I don't think you'll see us do nothing in the back half of the year. <laughs> well, nonetheless, it's going to be, as we've talked about, a really interesting space to watch and a great space just to, to watch margins be, be solidified. As long as everything goes to plan, I think that may be one of the, the smoothest uh, completions we've seen so far this year. So we wish you luck with all of that. And thanks so much for being on. Thank you very much for, for having me on. It's been a real pleasure.